Welcome to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler-Sutton, an ongoing discussion on geeky topics. Hey, it's that one guy. It's the cry of many a character actor, so much so that it's got its own page on TV tropes. And for actor Steven Toblowski, that's fine with him. Appearing in over 200 films and or television episodes, you may know him as the insurance salesman in Groundhog Day, the substitute teacher Sandy Ryerson in Glee, or from any number of various roles. For me, the role that moved him from It's That One Guy to knowing his actual name was as a guest star on The Lone Gunman, the short-lived sequel series to The X-Files. His experience in television, film, and theater are varied, and he has a wide range of stories about his life, both on and off the stage and screen. In 2005, he and his stories became the subject of Stephen Toblowski's Birthday Party, a movie whereby he captures his friends and family, and the audience, with these stories of his life. This film led to the podcast The Toblowski Files, which I've recommended both back in 2011 and again in February of this year. In 2014, I had the chance to interview him. He was going to be at that year's LA Festival of Books promoting his book The Dangerous Animals Club, which is a series of some of those tales. He's coming back to this year's LA Festival of Books promoting his newest book, My Adventures with God, and so I thought it would be a great chance to bring this interview out from storage. First of all, in terms of the podcast, was hoping to get a little bit more of the origin story. I mean, I know it came from the Stephen Toblowski's Birthday Party movie, but in terms of why that movie happened, how that got to be made, and what how that all started. Yeah. Boy, years ago, my buddy Robert Brinkman, uh, director, cinematographer, he wanted to do a movie based on me telling my stories, which I used to do quite often at parties in the kitchen with many Corona beers uh, being consumed. And Robert said, you know, your stories are so fun and interesting. I bet we could just film them, you telling these stories. And at the time, it was ridiculous to even think that. Uh, there was no such thing as HD, and consequently, any kind of film like that would have cost maybe six, $700,000 just for film and film production of me talking to a camera. I mean, it was impossible. So we thought, okay, we'll, we'll tackle this at some other point in the future. And that point came, I guess, in 2005, I'm thinking. Maybe we talked about it in October 2004, and both Robert wasn't working and I wasn't working, and more importantly, HD was developed which meant that we could actually shoot this movie ourselves for maybe $40,000 at most, which is a huge difference, and it was possible to do. So with no rehearsal, no script, no permits, no nothing, just using Robert's friends as crew and my friends as extras, we shot over a three-day period, four including the day that Robert paid for a helicopter flyover of Los Angeles to stick the money shot, you know, in the movie that makes it look like a movie flying over uh, L.A. and over my house. And we made the film, and then a la something from a Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland movie of the future, we, we used all sorts of favors to edit the film, and Andy Patsoigl, who was our uh, producer and editor, 
he borrowed some equipment from HBO to edit the film on. And when he returned the equipment, he forgot that our work disc was still in the burner, in the drive. And it went back to HBO. And some of the people at HBO saw it. It went up the food chain. And someone at HBO called Andy and called Robert and said, hey, this is a terrific movie. Can we premiere it at the HBO Comedy Festival in Aspen? And we thought, well, great. And then uh, South by Southwest saw it, and they said, we'll premiere it. There is a 50s concept of virginity when it comes to a lot of film festivals. South by Southwest was generous enough to say that they would show the film even after HBO Comedy Fest had played it. Since then, over the years, we played at uh, San Francisco and Montreal and New York and London. We sold out three days in Buenos Aires. We opened the Bologna, Italy Film Festival. It's been all over the world, the little film that could. David Chin saw this movie and thought it was terrific and wanted to interview me. It, it came out too late to be on his top ten list for SlashFilm.com, but he said he wanted to put it on the list. So he called up the number at the website, which happened to be Robert Brinkman's home. And Robert answered the phone, and David wanted to get some copies of the film. And he said, are you Robert, Robert Brinkman, the director of the movie? You're like taking the phone calls to make orders for the film. And Robert said, yes. And, he, and David said, well, I love the movie, and we want to feature it. Now, at that particular time is when I had broken my neck. And so I'm sitting at home with a brace on my neck, and David calls me up and says he'd like to interview me on Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party. And I think David and I, we had a great show that night talking about various elements of film. They had me on two other times, I think one reviewing a movie, reviewing the money movie and talking about some foreign films at one other point in time. And that is when David said, you know, Stephen... If you want, we can continue Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party, but as a podcast. I would record it here in Boston. You could do whatever you want. We'll record it. And that's when I asked Anne, my wife, I said, what do you think about this? And Anne said, always say yes. Always say yes. It was right after my broken neck. And of course, I wasn't too sure what my future would be acting-wise. But during the period of time I had my neck broken, I had begun writing these stories about my life for my kids so they would know who their dad was in case I was ever stupid enough to ride a horse again. So I called David up and I said, well, we could record the stories, but I still own them, right? You don't own them for recording. He said, no, 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 you would own them. I just believe in the stories and I believe in the project and we'll do it that way. And that was how we began. And now, tonight, actually, we're going to record, I think, episode 64. So we've recorded now for several years. We've had to take breaks. We took almost a complete break last year because a Public Radio International wanted to move the show to a national stage with, with their radio, and they said they felt it was too confusing having the podcast and the radio show at the same time. We've done four shows of the Tobolowsky Files for Public Radio International. They've been tested in 55 markets, and it tested very well, very highly. 
and we still are hoping to move the podcast to a national stage. But David and I have felt like momentum, inertia. You know, you got to keep going. So we've just started recording podcasts again now, and we're going to be doing our Kickstarter movie next week in Seattle, where I'm going to be doing a story from the Dangerous Animals Club and from the podcast, which is uh, Conference Hour, one of my favorite stories. And we're going to be doing a new story called The Primary Instinct, and we'll be uh, shooting a live performance at the Moor. Awesome. You've answered a lot of my other questions in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of what prompted the book and, and in terms of uh, going back to the movie and going full circle. Since these are stories from your life, I'm assuming you don't really have writer's block per se, but what makes you decide what story to do next or what story to focus on next? The story tells me. I know it sounds new agey and heebie-jeebie, but as soon as I finish writing a story, I get a little voice in my ear of saying, you know what would be good next, Stephen, is if you did this story. And I maybe would not have thought of it, and I'll go like, yeah, that is kind of perfect. And then I end up with these through lines going. And if you know the podcast, you know that it's not linear. It's what I call modular. And there are literary precedents for this. One of my favorite is Gorky who in his, my apprenticeship and my childhood, my apprenticeship and my universities, within each of those stories, he is not chronological in his stories and the stories kind of jump around and it develops a kind of tension with the jumping around. And by doing that, I'm not obliged to tell everything about one event at one time. For example, like in the latest group of stories I've been talking about when I was auditioning for New York for Broadway uh, because I wanted to meet Julie Haggerty. And I had several stories, the true arena in which I get called to make the audition and it means that if I get the job, my wife and I are gonna be separated for a while and what does the first day of a dream look like, which is the story of the audition. Then I get the job. Then the long-distance relationship, which is me telling my son that daddy's going away for a while. And those three stories were recorded all together. And then the voice comes in my ear and says, well, Stephen, you know what works perfectly here now is if you go back in time and talk about your last Broadway show, about what that was like. Because Mornings at 7 is triumphant. The show I did on Broadway in 2002 was amazing. We were one of the top shows in New York. We got more Tony nominations than any straight play in history. Uh, we lost them all. We, got, we were at 95% capacity all through the year. It was a hit. And the first time I was on Broadway, it was not a hit. So it was a perfect time to be modular and not linear, and I could go back in time 25 years to the first time I went on Broadway and have that story come in next about what it was like going there with my old girlfriend, Beth, in my previous life and bring in those stories about Beth and me and 
our expectations in New York. And those stories then create tension for the new story going back and forth in time. So the story presents itself that way, and what we're reporting tonight is a story that's part of that sequence of stories. I guess it's kind of like Schubert did a lot of song cycles. Like one of them that I'm thinking right offhand is The Wanderer. And it's like a tone poem. And if you listen to the whole cycle, uh, which is about 12 songs, there are interconnected themes. There are motifs that go together. And it's very dramatic. And, and it tells a story. And and I thought of my stories that maybe I could do like not a linear history of beginning, middle, and end of something, but do it like a song cycle. And that way you're able to bring in bigger themes. With the, I mean, because nobody really cares about actors. I, I think people think that they think that show business stories are going to be interesting, but they're not. They have a little bit of the exotic to them because people are performing on stage or on Broadway or movies. But what really matters in that story that's universal is having something on the line and losing it all. And in doing so, leaving your wife and family behind and taking that risk again. Then you have a big story, as opposed to actor goes to Hollywood, actor tries to make good, which is kind of boring, especially when you consider like my brother is a physician and actually has to save people and watch people die in his office. That's important. So that was kind of what I wanted to do with the stories. And I found it very freeing, not being linear, not having a direct line. That way, I could, if I wanted to write a big story like the story of my open heart surgery, I have three enormous podcasts that are linear, that go from beginning to end. And then I can break it up like sorbet with something that goes back that maybe I mentioned in one of those stories about an earlier time when I first felt something in my heart that has nothing to do with my heart but could be a story about that. And the audience then brings all of the information from the podcast that they've heard, and they are invested in a different way in this older story. Um, yes. Well, you say that one of the things, and that talking about your memory and whatnot, one of the things that you're asked about regularly is in terms of how you're able to remember all this. What you know, what kind of memory tricks you you use to be able to pull out stuff that you know maybe have happened to you twenty, thirty years ago. Yeah, two or three things on that. One is I always kept notes my whole life. Even when I was in, I just found some notes I took when I was in grade school and junior high school, just about little details in my life. Not like a journal, not like anything, but I thought it was kind of interesting. I just found a notebook from Mississippi Burning of a day in which I was walking through Jackson, Mississippi, and just taking notes of what I was seeing and ideas. I go like, I haven't seen this now in 20, over 20 some odd years. When was that? 88 or something? That was a long time ago, almost 30 years ago. And I was just seeing it again. But I have various lines of demarcation in my past, which helped me. For example, we moved 
when I was four. So I know that any memories I have from our first home was pre-four years of age. So I know they were from three or even two years of age, those old memories. And then I went to one school from fifth, sixth, and seventh grade, those three years. And then I went to another school, eighth and ninth grade. And then I went to high school, 10th, 11th, 12th. So I have very clear volumes. My hard drive is broken into volumes to where I could remember specifically events from certain time periods. I just read a science article that says that sometimes when children are depressed, that they cannot remember events in their past. And then it also said that when people are terrorized or feel that their lives are threatened in some way, they remember everything. So I can say probably I was happy but terrorized as a child. Uh, Not depressed, but terrorized. And I remember my childhood is very happy. Now, taking that for what it's worth, I will say very plainly that I only write about my memories. And I don't pretend that my memories are history. Because I know that everybody has their own particular point of view. And what I want to say in my podcast is the whether I have misremembered something or, or didn't quite have this fact exactly right or not is not important. What is important is that's the way I remember it, and the story is based on that stream of things. I know, for example, my sister remembers certain events completely differently. I know she's wrong because I was older than she was, and she she's wrong about what she remembers, but... If I were to talk to her, she would be very angry at me for saying something that, quote, was not true because she remembers it differently. And, of course, lawyers will tell you one of the most uncertain things in the world is eyewitness testimony. So I don't pretend that my memories are true, but I will verify that my memories are my memories. Hi, you're listening to Jen Morris. Chuck Smith. And you might remember us from that other podcast, Dave Savvy. And right now you're listening to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler Sutton. Geek Out like a dork dynasty. Woo-woo! You can find Contents May Vary, the home of the Geek Out podcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash contentsmayvary. You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr, all at the handle Angie F. Sutton. Finally, the site now has a newsletter. Be sure to sign up for it over at my website, angiefsutton.com. And now back to my interview with writer and actor Stephen Dolowski. Well, and that leads into the question I'd asked at the LA Festival of Books. Since these are, you know, very personal stories, um, what kind of reaction have you gotten from your friends and family? Especially, you know, not all of these are, are happy, happy, joy, joy type of stories. Some yeah. of them are, you know, kind of sad and kind of negative. <laughs> Well, I first of all, I told you about Beth and uh, how at first Beth was nutly with the fact that I had written these stories that included her. And then she listened to them and she had some other friends read them. And then she felt very positively about them. And I tried to make sure that, you know, obviously we broke up. So there were hard feelings on both sides. 
And I try not to make any of my stories trying to win a grudge match, like trying to say, like, well, this happened to me, blah, 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 when she doesn't have the right to answer her point of view. So I try not to even get into that. I try not to get into any of the I said, she said stuff. It's unimportant. Needless to say, we both hurt each other's feelings a lot. And I think it's worth it to talk about how we fell in love. That's universal. And I think it's important to talk about is how I let myself down in the relationship. But I don't want to put words into her mouth. And I don't want to put motivations in her mouth. So I just don't write about that stuff. And in terms of writing about my family, my sister has asked that I not write stories about her, so I don't. And then I get criticized from other members of my family saying, well, you never write any stories about Barbie. You know, she asked me not to, so I don't. Again, I try not to make my stories about my judgment over anything that my parents did. Uh, I just try to say what they did and let the audience, you know, some people in the audience may find it delightful. Some people may find it crazy, you know, but that's, that's what makes them an audience and me the one telling the story. I just personally don't want to cast judgment on anything they did. And I think that takes the onus off of, any what would be negative information about various members of my family or other people. I try to keep the stories centered around me and my experience of my own life with the hopes that if I keep it as truthful as it can be, then my experiences will be translated into other people's experiences, and they will see their own life in it. And I believe I mentioned at the L.A. Time Festival of Books, like with Joan Potter, uh, the teacher in college that tried to get me kicked out of school on numerous occasions. I got emails from all over the world when that story came out about people saying, that happened to me. And then they would tell me their story, and their story was completely different. Their story could have been a story about business with a boss in a completely different situation, but they were all stories in which they were powerless and they were in a situation which they felt was life or death, in which the person with power was manipulating them or leading them to their own demise. And that was the way people saw the story not necessarily about a professor in drama school that was doing something harmful to them for their future. So that's what I hope will happen. If I Like the story I'm doing tonight is about gambling, me and gambling in a casino. I'm not a big-time gambler, but hopefully people will see their experiences of gambling in my story if I just talk about my fears or my hopes or my greed or my compulsion of putting out another bet, they may see their life in there and it may tend to be more universal.
this may or may not be interesting. I don't know. But after I write the podcast and record the podcast, I go back and rewrite it. Actually, yeah, that was kind of where I was going to lend into next is the actual writing process. Um, obviously, this is writing is not your main profession. You're an actor. <laughs> um, so, you know, do you have any kind of set schedule that you use or how how often do you work on it? Is it something that you try and work on regularly or is it just whenever you have free time in, in between other projects? Well, I, I have a book due in December, so I write all the time because I have to get the book in. But I find that and I've talked to other writers since then that they do the same kind of thing. First of all, I try to write every day when I'm home, when I'm not working, like when I'm not acting. Uh, when I am acting, I try to take notes for writing or something that I can do. But when I have free time and free headspace, I usually get up very early in the morning, six or so, because my head's clearer in the morning, and I start writing. And I have different levels of participation. It depends on how my writer shows up. Sometimes my writer is there and I just sit back and my writer takes over. And he is telling jokes and he's tying things together that I never imagined would tie together. I thought, damn, thank goodness, you are so good. I Thank you for being here today, writer. Well, the writer doesn't know. <laughs> The writer doesn't always show up. I, yeah, I definitely relate to that. I understand that. But I learned not to panic over that because there's another level underneath that which says, like, okay, the writer is going to show up later in the week or sometime in the week. So today, let's just put down the bare bones of the story that we think we want and write out, just start writing what we want to write, not necessarily in any particular order, just to start writing a part and later the writer will come in and fix it. And then there's a level beneath that in which I am hung over or I am tired or it's not working at all. And I just start taking notes, just like writing a few lines or a paragraph or an idea. Like if I go to, I, I will write down, uh, uh, here's, I, I just picked up one of my notes just I click on it, I have one of those iPad things, so I just do different pages of notes. Like here's one that says, inspiration is just a form of permission. So that's just one thing. Now that may end up in a story somewhere. Here's one that says, a story is a moral a joke, a journey of some kind that takes you from one place to another. I don't judge myself. I just like write it down and think, well, maybe that could turn into something someday. Oh, here's one when the writer did not show up. It was goodbyes. So I wrote down a list of all the goodbyes in my life. Just Let's see, there was my mother who had the first heart attack, dad apologizing. I was never able to say goodbye to her. Beth, she hugged me around the waist. She gave me a jewel. Bob, my friend in the hospital, and we had a marriage proposal earlier in our life. Anne at the airport. Pooch, when I took Pooch on a date to the movies. So I, I wrote down all the different goodbyes I had in my life, and now I'm just going to leave it there and think, like, well, maybe I'll find something that connects all those dots. Here's something when my writer was there. My friend Bob Darnell 
who I write about often in the podcast. He was the Marine. I don't know if you remember him from some of the stories. Yeah, I remember him. It says here, Darnell lost his teeth during his cancer. He said he had lost his smile. A dentist said for $10,000, he could give him some implants and false teeth. He said, bro, I can't believe what I've lost. I'll never do a play again. Now I've lost my smile. I was trying to be nice, but I was being stupid. I said, Bob, you could still smile. We all know what you're going through. It doesn't matter to us. Bob smiled at me with the look of someone kind dealing with someone who doesn't understand. He said he was embarrassed to smile without his teeth. This, I think, is definitely going to end up being in a story somewhere about not understanding what other people are going through. I was trying to be sympathetic to his plight and saying, like, it's okay that you don't have teeth. You know, we love you. We love you the way you are. But I wasn't hearing what he said. So knowing someone who has cancer and lost their teeth may not be universal. But us not listening to what is hurting someone else is universal. And that'll probably end up in a story somewhere. Well, and you you touched on this briefly. As a writer myself, I know that writing and acting are two different creative processes, but they are both creative processes. Do you find one affecting the other in terms of how you approach your work? Totally, 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 totally. When I'm writing a lot, it's much more difficult to act. Uh, It's much more difficult to do anything. It's a very insular sort of activity. And the more you write, the more you get into your head, and the more you hear the little voices of your characters in your head, and the harder it is to act. Whereas when you act, it's not that hard to jump over and to write. Because as an actor, you're being observant, and you're watching what's happening in the scene. You're improvising sometimes in the scene. And it's much easier to jump from acting to writing than it is from writing to acting. And as someone who's done audio as well, what kind of differences, if there are any, between what you write for your books versus what you're doing for the podcast? I mean, there's probably oh. some small small differences here and there, possibly. Big differences. Yeah. Big differences. At least they're big difference to me. When you write for a book and the, someone is reading your book, the audience gets ahead of the story very quickly, very, very quickly. You have to be, you got to lose the adjectives and adverbs. I'm sorry, it's a dark and stormy night. We're already there. We're already there and we're ahead of it. We don't need to hear about the rain splashing on the window, making a pitter patter. You know, I got it. I'm there. I'm already ahead of you. When you write, you have to move much quicker into your story and you have to develop the ideas or what are going to be the engaging ideas of your story very quickly. When people send me things that they've written to look at, I go like, too much description, too much description. It's like, get rid of it. It's like, I'm there. I know it. I'm already there. When you do a podcast, you can put more of that stuff in because it's radio theater in a way. The audience is listening to it. And in a way, they enjoy, they're reacting to the sound of your voice and the way you are responding to the different things you're hearing and seeing. That seems the biggest difference to me is the time difference. When you write for someone to read, you've got to get to it. You've got to get to it quickly and, and, and not, not doll it up. 
because that just gunks it up. The audience gets bored very quickly. Talk a little bit about the the response to the podcast and the books. Is this anything that you had ever even expected that it was going to be as popular as it has been? No, no, not at all. And and it again, I don't think it's a big, huge wave of popularity, like it is huge numbers. I mean, it's several thousands, but it's not like millions, but it's thousands of people, and it's people all over the world. And it's opened so many doors to me because of one of the podcast fans invited me out to Dublin, Ireland, and I came out and did some stories and taught at one of the acting classes there, and they put me up, and it was all because of the podcast. Went to New Zealand, fans of the podcast in New Zealand brought me out, and we paid for the flight. They took care of the uh, hotel in Auckland. They got the theater. They put me up. The money I got from the show there helped pay for the rest of our trip. It all came from fans of the podcast. It surprised me. And with the book, I've gotten so many wonderful remarks of people who are are using my book in churches, uh, are giving them as gifts to everybody they know, know, are giving them to everybody in the office. It has touched different kinds of nerves and different kinds of people, but all of them are people, they all say the same thing, that they laughed so hard, they cried so hard, they had a great time reading it. And to me, that's wonderful. And then my final question with regards to the podcast, and then I have one acting question. You talked briefly at the beginning that, that, that it was one of your favorite stories. Do you have favorite stories, or is it like picking your favorite kid kind of thing? No, that's a joke. You're right. <laughs> The joke is, I always tell David Chin, well, this is my favorite story, David. And they're all my favorite. You know, they all required such work and such effort to write them. Some of them were like conference hour that I wrote in one sitting. I started one Christmas morning at like 7 a.m. and I finished that night at 7 p.m. But it was 12 hours straight through and it was totally a freeing experience. Some of them are much more difficult, take two, three weeks to write one podcast. I don't find the time factor consistent with whether the story is good or bad. Like Conference Hour is fabulous, did it in 12 hours. Uh, Contagion took three weeks, and it's a very good story. So it's just sometimes the stories take a long time, and sometimes they don't, but they all take heart and soul and effort, and none of them, are cast-offs. None of them are... The cast-offs just don't get written. So every one of my stories has, I guess as Artur Rubinstein would say, has blood in it. It it has my heart and soul and effort and expectations and dreams that I did the best I possibly could in it, so they're all my favorite. Artur Rubinstein uh, spoke in a way that they criticized him always of not practicing enough. Of course, he was a genius. He didn't have to. But he said a lot of people play by rote, that there is no blood in the performance. And he says when he goes out on stage, he wants to feel like on any given night he could win or Beethoven could win. But the audience can tell that it's a struggle. And I think with my stories by blood, I don't necessarily mean effort. I mean that Kind of the truth of my life is there, and I had to work to put the most truthful thing there I could put. 
And that's what the blood is. Switching topics, uh, my one acting question is you'd mentioned briefly about how you actually kind of enjoy being a character actor. I'd like to talk a little bit more about your thoughts about being a character actor. What do you like about it? What don't you like about it? Well, it depends a lot on the narrative and the skill of of the writing. Uh, I was in one movie, Bossa Nova. Bruno Barreto uh, did the film, a Brazilian film in which everybody in the film is really kind of a character actor. I am certainly not. I I am a romantic figure in the character, but I'm not the leading man or leading woman. But each character is drawn with such care. Those kind of character parts are diamonds. I mean, they're just precious. Most of the time, what character parts are are facilitating roles, roles in which you are giving the audience exposition so they can understand the situation that the leading character is going through. Like, if you touch that green to the red, it may blow. You know, things like that. Or, we got to get out of here. We only have three and a half minutes before it's going to blow. Or, or like, you know how to hotwire a car? Things like that where you're just setting up the leading guy so he can lead our character through. And there isn't really a character that has been thought of by the writer. The writer just thinks uh, in terms of, like I was saying, in a comedy, you use the job description and the first name, like Sheriff Charlie. It's like, how long are you boys going to be in this town? You know, exposition. But what you have to do when you're carrying that load of exposition is, You have to kind of be a real character, and you have to think, like, am I good at what I do or bad at what I do? How long have I been doing this? What's the favorite part of my job? What's the least favorite part of my job? Do I like ham or turkey? You know, do I like dessert or do I like salad? You have to fill in all the blanks to make even those expositional parts real. And when it gets bad is when your part is not even just a vehicle getting exposition out, that your part is scotch tape to hold the show together. Then it's awful because your character doesn't make any sense at all. At one time you're saying one thing, at another time you're saying another. It it doesn't make any sense in the real world. It's contradictory. It's nothing a human being would do. And you still have to find a reason why you would do it. And those are, those roles are brutally difficult. And it's much easier playing in the, like the perfect storm where you're constantly wet all day in cold, awful conditions. If you have a part with a ton of lines that you have to remember in awful conditions, than, than playing a small part where you're scotch tape. And that is just agony, but that's what you get paid to do, mm-hmm. is figure out how to make that work. So, uh, okay, well, that was pretty much the, the bulk of my thing. Was there anything that you were hoping that we were ta- we would talk about that we haven't, no, or anything no, that you thought I'd just, ask? Just whatever you want, <laughs> and, and uh, uh, I'll, I'll say this much about writing in, in terms of inspirations, is that when people talk about writer's block all the time. I don't have that because I give myself permission to start anywhere in the story 
and work forward, backward, or from the middle out, a lot of times people go like, well, what's the perfect beginning of this story? And they get blocked. And you could find inspiration in a song, in a painting, in a TV commercial, in something you hear at the airport. It, it could be anywhere. And so all, all I do is, for myself, in terms of getting around writer's block, is give yourself permission to know that the writer will be in later. He'll, he'll get in and fix it later and make it all better and rewrite. And give yourself permission to not have to start at the beginning and go to the end. You, you could go in any direction you want. Actually, that does bring up an interesting question. Have you thought about writing fiction versus nonfiction? Oh, yeah. And, you know, I've written screenplays that are fiction and, and all that. It's just the project that I'm on with the Tobolowsky Files is pretty consuming. And if the second book does well, I may have a third book, and the third book may be fiction. But even with it fiction, it will be based on elements from my notes that I know are true because an audience can hear things in their ear and they know that they're true, even if it happens in a fictional context. And then final question, if you could travel in time and meet yourself back when you were first starting out, either writing or acting or both, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give yourself? Don't be so afraid. Don't be so afraid. All things, the good things and the bad things, have a way of working out into something else. Nothing is what you think it's going to be. So don't worry about it. Just follow that little voice in your head. It's difficult because young people, the voice they hear in their head is the voice of ambition. It's a very loud voice. And at a certain point, that voice diminishes. And you go like, you know, my career is what it's going to be. I will get a certain number of jobs. I won't get another certain number of jobs. I just need to hear the little voice. And as long as I hear the little voice, I'm a happy cat. You can get more tales of Stephen Toblowski in both his books and on his podcast. More information on both can be found on his website, stephentoblowski.com. And as he always does in his podcast, I'll spell that out for you. That's Stephen with a P-H-T-S-T-E-P-H-E-N, and it's Toblowski, T-O-B-O-L-O-W-S-K-Y. Until next time, stay geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler-Sutton. The theme song is Schoolyard Haze by Yari Pitnikin, available via the Free Music Archive. This podcast is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike License. More information about the podcast is available on AngieFSutton.com.